Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's scripture comes from Mark 5, 1-20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And when Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. You may be seated. Mm -hmm. And as you're being seated, let's, let's pray together. So Heavenly Father, we pray now as your Son taught us to pray. Would your kingdom come here in hasting sunrise as it is in heaven? Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, to respond to the words, to the life, and to the work of your son Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, throughout the world this Sunday, today, Christians across the globe are celebrating Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday, celebrating and remembering the, the coming of the Spirit that we read about in Acts 2 that came and empowered and rushed upon God's people and indeed entered into the world, brought into the world a new era, a new epoch. 
where God's word would go out in power by God's spirit and people would be transformed. And it's so fitting that today is Pentecost Sunday because today is all about what happens when a new kingdom comes to town. When a new king comes to town. Anytime a new king or kingdom comes to town, something, someone has to give. Someone has to move over. The history of the world is one kingdom displacing, overthrowing, conquering another. And all this is very interesting because if you remember in Mark 1, Jesus spoke of his gospel in these words, using this kind of terminology saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. If Jesus brings the kingdom of God, which kingdom will it displace? Which king is he seeking to overthrow? And to Jesus' first listeners, perhaps they thought it should be Rome quaking in their boots, right? Or maybe just non-Jews, Gentiles, like those in the country of the Gerasenes or in the region of the Decapolis. Maybe they thought it would be them quaking in their boots. Maybe they should be the ones who fear Jesus' coming kingdom. But we don't get too far in Mark's gospel before we realize that Jesus sets his sights higher. Higher. That while it is true that Jesus' kingdom will eventually supersede all earthly kingdoms, all earthly kingdoms, this will happen as he ultimately conquers the reign of the strong man behind each and every empire. And so in Mark 3, we read this curious parable. It happens as the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying about Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And so Jesus does this. He called them to him and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And, have, and if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But is coming to an end. And then Jesus says in verse 27, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus does not just say, hey, I'm not possessed by a demon. What does he do? Jesus, through a parable, likens the ministry of his bringing God's kingdom to a robbery, to a burglary, to plundering a home. And in the parable, the owner of the house is not some hapless home owner, but, but Satan himself. Jesus' kingdom has come, is coming, will come in full to overthrow Satan's domain of darkness. We've been asking for the last few weeks and will ask in the coming weeks, who is Jesus, right? Who is Jesus? Ready? Jesus, friends, this morning is the one who has come to bind the strong man, to do what only he can do. So two very simple points. First, the strong man Second, the stronger man. The strong man and the stronger man. First point, the strong man. I don't know if you have your Bibles in front of you. I encourage you to have your Bibles in front of you. 
But our story begins with, with this devastating picture of the reign of death in one man's life. It just, it just reeks of death, doesn't it? It reeks of death. Jesus has just led his disciples through a storm across the Sea of Galilee. They've come to this new region. They hit the shore and they're confronted by this man, this infamous man. And Mark describes him like this in verse 2. When Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Right away... Mark locates the source of the problem here in the demonic. He says that here is a man with an unclean spirit. And because we don't, on the whole, have a paradigm for thinking of the unseen realm, let's talk for a moment about the demonic, about demons, about unseen realities. See, Christians by definition, you should know this, are not materialists. That is, we believe in an unseen world that there is more than what we can see and touch and feel. We're not materialists, at least historically speaking. But we're also, on the flip side of that, not pantheists. We do not think that there is a God or a power in every rock, river, and rodent. Right? There, there's no devil behind every bush. That, that's not how we think as Christians, or at least that's how we've historically thought. Uh, the great Christian writer C.S. Lewis, he famously has this quote, and maybe you've heard it before, but I like it. He says this. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors in, into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. M materialism, right? That they can't be real. I can't see them. I can't touch them. Can't be real. The other, he says, is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And they themselves, he writes, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or magician with the same delight. In cutting through these errors, Christianity has always taught, always believed that God created the world and filled it with both physical and spiritual beings. God ruling over them both. That's true. But just as God gives freedom to humanity to submit to him or rebel against him, so too do we believe that there are spiritual beings who have rebelled against God and chief among them a spiritual enemy called the Satan or literally the adversary. And three, this means the Christian does not uniformly accept all spirituality as good. Hear me. Christianity does not accept uniformly across the board all spirituality as good, but recognizes that the landscape is more dangerous, is fraught with landmines. That when we talk about spirituality, biblically speaking, we are talking about life and death stuff. And so, for example, Jesus in the Gospel of John, he'll contrast his ministry with the ministry of the adversary like this. Listen, he says, the thief, the thief, what does he come to do? only to steal and kill and destroy. 
But I have come, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it abundantly, life and death. These are the stakes. And, and isn't, isn't that exactly what we see in our text today? Look back at Mark 5 with me. This man, it says, lives among the tombs. His involvement in normal society, having a family, working with friends, laughing, this has all been stolen from him. Apparently, he's also been put out here for a reason. People had, at many times and in many ways, tried to bind him with no success. He is a threat to others. His reputation, his whole life, destroyed, decimated. And, and using descriptive language that admittedly is difficult to stomach, Mark says he was cutting himself with stones. The demons have come to kill, to destroy, and to steal. Mark tells us this torment is constant, night and day. And in the face of such demonic torment and power, humanity is utterly helpless, powerless. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Again, no one had the strength to subdue him. So do not be afraid to see this morning what Mark wants us to see. Ready? The reign of Satan is not a small, insignificant, or laughable thing. Despite what horned costumes glibly worn at Halloween might convey, the reign of Satan is death itself producing in all under its sway the effects of death. And on our own, by ourselves, left to our own devices, we are helpless to the tyranny of Satan. That's what Mark wants us to see. That all of us, not just the demon-possessed, but all of us are all under Satan's reign, are swept up into his regime, his influence compounded by our own tendency to sin and corruption, compounded further by our own unknowing adoption of worldly lies. Look back at your Bible with me. The great irony of the demon-possessed man is that while no earthly shackles or chains can bind him, is he not still very much a prisoner? He's still a prisoner. He is still a captive. He's captive to Satan. He is bound by the legion of demons that torment him. And the Bible teaches us that this is true of every person who has not put their faith in Jesus. Say, hold on. Hold on. It, it might be true this morning that you are not wrestling with the demonic. But some of you are. And you need to know that there's freedom in Jesus. And there's power in Jesus' name. But some of you are not wrestling with the demonic. I want, I want to show you something. The enemy's sway over the world is a subtle sway, if you will, a subtle sway. Look, look back at Mark 5 with me. Did you notice the power of the man? Did you notice his strength? I, I admit, I, I was moving yesterday, some, some, some items from one house to the other, and I noticed my lack of strength, and I'm a bit envious of the strength of this man. I was struggling to pick up boxes, right? Did you notice the strength of the man in this text? Nothing can bind him. Nothing can subdue him. How many of us, myself included, long for that kind of power? Long for that kind of power. The power to not be contained or limited by anyone or anything. A, a few weeks ago, I was listening to an interview that J.K. Rowling 
was giving. He was the author, some of you know, of the, the, the very famous Harry Potter franchise. And, and in that interview, she was asked why she thinks that the, the character of Harry uh, has been so endearing, so popular amongst kids. And, and I'm paraphrasing, but she said something to the effect of this. She says, the fantasy of having power, having agency, in the face of powerlessness, in the face of hopelessness, is so enticing, isn't it? So enticing. It's for this reason I think Harry Potter, superhero movies are so popular today. There's this wider cultural recognition that things are wrong. Things are wrong, like desperately, really, really wrong. And sometimes... Sometimes we want to, just for a moment, for the length of a book or a film, be transported into a world where people, maybe even me, where I have the power to do something about it. Right? It's the John Wicks of the world. I can't enact vengeance in my life, but I'll watch someone do it in theirs. Satan's reign doesn't always look and smell like death. Sometimes it looks like tremendous power. Sometimes it looks like untold riches. Sometimes it looks like external beauty. And that's why it's so tempting. If Satan's kingdom did not present as appealing, friends, we would not be in the mess that we're in. If you can remember, there'd be no sin. In the garden, the fruit comes to Adam and Eve not as some rotting apple, that not as, and I apologize if this offends you, like a piece of durian, right, where it stinks. It just smells. And if you like durian, God bless you. It's not for me. No, no, what does it say in Genesis, uh, in Genesis 3, verse 6? It says, it was a delight to the eyes. It's enticing. There's something appealing about being our own king, about, about what the fruit promises to us. But further in the book of Proverbs is this character of the seductress. Right? She doesn't appeal or appear as death, does she? No. It says in Proverbs 5 that, that her lips drip honey and her speech is, is smoother than oil. And yet, in the end, her feet go down to death, to Sheol, to the grave. The strong man has many ways to draw you deeper in. But in the end, all the paths lead to one place, and that's death. And if that's you this morning, and you're struggling with this downer of a sermon, let me just invite you, let me call you to just, to just come with me to the good news in our text. The good news that we find in Mark 5, 1-20. See, neither the reputation of the demoniac nor the shame of being unclean prevents Jesus from going after those in Satan's grasp. If you're reading this in the first century or close to the first century, uh, it would immediately stick out to you as weird, this whole story. Jesus comes to an unclean region, right? Jews don't go to, to the region of the Decapolis, to this land of the garrisons. They don't go there. He comes to an unclean region where there's an unclean man full of unclean spirits living amongst unclean tombs. And nonetheless, he's there. 
And furthermore, if it's true that those pigs were being raised to feed the Roman army, which I think there's a good likelihood that they were, he's surrounded by people engaged in an unclean profession, holding up and perpetrating the very oppression over God's people. Like Jesus should not be here. Picture that in your mind. Where Jesus should not be. He's there. He's there. But Jesus will not be stopped. Not by the storm right before this. Not by a legion of demons. And certainly not by some man-made boundary line. Do you believe that's true today? My functional theology, maybe like your functional theology, is that Jesus is like Mufasa in The Lion King. Jesus is like Mufasa in the Lion King, right? He concedes that there are shadowy places that are beyond his borders, beyond his reach. Places he is either not permitted to go or willing to go. And it's worth pausing and asking, what are the shadowy places for you? Where you functionally believe Jesus' kingdom has no claim. Is it among the slums, the poor and the destitute, or amongst the affluent in the suburbs? Funny enough, I think this functional theology that you have, and that I definitely have at times, is also the functional theology of the demons as well. Look at Mark 5, verse 10. And he, which is a strange thing to put there because it's really they, And they, this legion of demons, they begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Why would the demons beg to stay in the Decapolis? Why would they want to stay there? To stay in this Gentile land? Why would it matter to them? I think it's because of this. James Edwards, he's a scholar, he writes, The plea of the demons not to be sent from the area is perhaps rooted in the illusion." That there, in this place that is surely beyond the borders of Jesus' kingdom, that there they are safe from the authority of Jesus. But the demons underestimate Jesus. Friends, who is Jesus? Jesus has come to bind the strong man and ransom. Ransom those captive in his home. This is point two, the stronger man. Look back at your Bibles. Verse 2 said, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with unclean spirit. What does he do? He falls to his face. He ran and fell down before him. In, in, in In case there is any question as to who would win this showdown, who would win this battle between the demonic and Jesus, the strong man and the stronger man, The unclean spirits do exactly what they've done every single time up until this point in Mark's gospel. Mark 3, verse 11. And whenever, every time the unclean spirits saw Jesus, they did what? They fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And here it's no different. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. The unclean spirits fall down. They buckle under Jesus' authority. The unclean spirits cry out. 
Their tongues are compelled under Jesus' authority. And really, the demons are only doing what one day every single person who sees Jesus for who he truly is will ultimately do. See, in Romans 14 and Isaiah 45, we read that one day every single knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. See, you might this morning be importing into, your, into this passage right here some sort of yin-yang dualism where there's this equal and opposite forces at work. Where there's the good guys and the bad guys and they're kind of, you know, equally kind of fighting it out, right? These two wrestlers of, of the same weight and the same skill entering into the ring. But, but the reality is the picture that this text is painting is more like me stepping into a cage with a T-Rex. That's, that's the fight. That's the comparison. That's the opposition. So we've seen Satan and his kingdom and what it brings. But look with me at Jesus and his kingdom, what his kingdom brings. First, we must see that Jesus, as the stronger man, brings calm into chaos. Calm into chaos. Last week, we saw Jesus' authority over all creation. And now this week, we see Jesus' authority over the crown jewel of creation. Us. You and me. After Jesus commands the demons out and into the pigs, we're told that those herdsmen run away to tell others what has happened. And those others return, and to their astonishment, what greets them in verse 15 is the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, in case you forgot who that man was, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. So, it would be wrong this morning to classify what happens in our text as only an exorcism, as just the sending out of demons. God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, the one that he's come to bring, is about the restoration of all things, including the image of God in us. Do you see that? The man is clothed, not naked. He is sitting, not fighting. And to the envy of all of us today who woke up this morning battling our thoughts, battling our minds, there he is before Jesus, and our text reads, he is sitting in his right mind. God's kingdom is not a band-aid. It's not a short-term fix. Its end is the restoration and healing of every part of creation, from the ocean floor to the very corners of our mind. You and me will be restored to the us we were created to be. Isn't that good news? Aren't you excited for that? This hope is uniquely Christian. Did you know that? Contrast this hope with the hope of Buddhism or Hinduism or Sikhism. And while all these faiths differ in very significant ways, they all have a very similar future hope to which they look forward to. In Hinduism and Buddhism, the ultimate end is that the many are absorbed into the one. The many absorbed into the one. There's no eternal bodily existence, no redeemed humanity, no personhood. And so too in Sikhism, when the soul returns to God, it does not dwell in communion with God as God's beloved creature. No, it is absorbed back into him. In all three, you and I fade and disappear. And our deep longing 
My deep longing, your deep longing to truly be the best version of ourselves is never satisfied. It's never realized. Only the Christian faith bestows on the person, gives dignity to the person from beginning to end. Beginning to end. Having been made in God's image, Jesus has come to restore that image in his children. And friends, that begins today. That begins right now. I'm looking around the room this morning. Many of you I know. Many of you I don't know. But this place is filled with people who though we are not, though we are not what we will be, are not what we once were. Isn't that true? The liberating work of the stronger man has already started, has already begun. And you can get in on it. You can get in on it. If you've come to the end of yourself, the end of your strength, if you've exhausted the depth of the self-help movement or Eastern mysticism, If you've realized that your best effort is not effort enough, come to Jesus, the stronger man. Trust that he and only he can liberate. But make no mistake about it. To come to Jesus is to relinquish every part of ourselves to him. I think that's why our text concludes the way it does. The crowd sees a demon-possessed man. Well, once demon-possessed man... And they're not happy. Do you notice? They're they're not happy. They're not excited. They're not even curious. Well, well, who is this Jesus guy? Maybe we should find out more. Ask him some questions. Nothing. Instead it reads, they came to Jesus. They saw the demon-possessed man, right? The one who had the legion. He's sitting there and he's clothed in his right mind. And what happens? What's their response? What, What bubbles up? They were afraid. They were afraid. So afraid, in fact, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They say, go. Get out of here. Why is it that they're so afraid? Why do they want this Jewish wonder worker to leave? It could be because, as some have suggested, that Jesus threatens their livelihood, right? He's just sent a whole bunch of bacon to the bottom of a sea. That's a problem, right? We need that to feed people and to make a living. That's a problem, admittedly. But even if that's the case, even if that's why they're afraid, and I'm not sure that it is, their love of money is still what blinds them from seeing and receiving who Jesus is. So I ask again, why do they beg Jesus to leave? And why do some of us beg Jesus to leave? Why, even now in this room, are we growing uncomfortable? Not, not, not quite safe. It's because the kingdom of God not only strikes fear at the kingdom of darkness out there, but at the kingdom of darkness in here. It threatens our idols of autonomy, our self-appointed lordship. The kingdom of God threatens my demonic desire for control. For me to be the one who speaks and the storm stops. I want that power. For me to be the one who through my own efforts, my efforts, my doing, affects calming change in the life of other people. I want that power. I want to do that. 
So the herdsmen and the others they brought with them, they run, they, they, they beg Jesus to leave because they wanted their own autonomy, because they wouldn't bend the knee. And though it would mean their liberation, and though it would mean their dignity, they beg Jesus to go. And it's no coincidence that last week, the story ended with fear, just as this week's story ends with fear, both in response to Jesus' display of power. Of power. See, Mark, the gospel writer, is asking all of us a very simple question. It's this. He's asking me, he's asking you, he's asking us, will we, having seen Jesus for who he is, let fear move us to trust? Will we, knowing that he has plans, painfully at times, to renovate every corner of our home, invite him in nonetheless? And having done this, will we go and tell others? Our text ends with another curious incident. It says, as he was getting into the boat, this is Jesus, the man who had been possessed with demons, begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus, surprisingly, at least I'm surprised, did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim the Decapolis, this huge region, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. It seems to me, whereas the begging of the crowd was sinful and foolish and misplaced, that the begging of the man is good and pure. Isn't this what discipleship is? Being with Jesus? Hasn't Jesus already talked about discipleship using these very words in Mark 3? And he appointed 12 so that they might be with him and so that he might send them out to preach. It seems to me that in our text, Mark, uh, like our text, Mark 3.14 serves to remind us that a life of discipleship to Jesus consists both in being with him and going out in his name. Being with him and going out in the authority that he gives us. So I want to end with the challenge this morning, and I'll end here. Some of you are very good at being with Jesus. You've got an active prayer life, right? You've got regular devotions in place. You take weeks out of the year to do intentional retreats. You observe a weekly Sabbath. That's all good. That's all great. Don't mishear me. But do not miss that in our text today, Jesus says no to this man who thinks it's a season of retreat and instead instead says go. He says go. He says go. Jesus says If I'm going to be barred in this moment from this region, you will go in my place. You will go and your message isn't complicated. You don't need a theological degree. You will simply tell other people how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy upon you. Go and do this. Go and tell. Go, 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 go. And you know what? Next time Jesus is in the Decapolis, in Mark 7, because he comes back, We read, so cool, we read that this time he's not greeted by a singular man, but but who's he greeted by? A whole crowd of people. A whole crowd of people. So what changed in this region over two chapters? 
What changed? Do you see it? In between visits, there was a single man, one man, not two, one, a single man who had been touched by the grace of God. He had no special training or insight. A man who just went around and told other people what had happened to him. That was his mission. That was his message. Telling others that God had had mercy on him. And so I ask us today, what would happen in Hastings Sunrise if we did the same? If not one man, but a whole church of people who have experienced the mercy of God went out and told. Brothers and sisters, a new kind of king has come. And he's bringing with him a new kingdom. A kingdom that will displace the rule of Satan and his domain of darkness. So go and tell. Would we be a church that goes and tells this week, this year, this life, to all who will hear how much the Lord, that is Jesus, has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Isn't that true? Let's pray. Jesus, we are desperate in the truest sense of the word. We are desperate for your kingdom to come in Hastings Sunrise and beyond as it is in heaven. We are desperate for you to pour out your spirit upon us like you did on that day of Pentecost over 2,000 years ago. We, we are desperate, Jesus. And we ask that in your kindness and in your mercy, that in our day, in our age, you would do a move that is unparalleled in our time. That your spirit would call people of every tribe, tongue, and language, every nation to yourself. That we might know and taste, even here, before your kingdom comes in full, just a bit, a bit of the goodness that awaits us in eternity. We love you, Lord. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.